Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There are many critical issues facing our society these days, and we cannot ignore other threats to our well-being. One such concern is the very significant dangers of particulate pollution in the air, the air that we breathe. Philip Landegren is the director of the Global Observatory on Pollution and Health at Boston College in Massachusetts. He has devoted much time in exploring and advocating for these concerns, and he's kind enough today to join us to bring us up to date on some of the current situations. Dr. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin with some of the contemporary things that's going on, because there's a lot of discussion now, obviously, about particulates. The current coronavirus epidemic brings to the media a great deal of discussion about using masks to protect ourselves. The term particle is often used. We need to begin with a basic definition. What is a particle, and do we need to classify the particles according as to whether they are toxic, living, not living, infectious, large, small, and so on? Tell us what a particle is, please. A particle is a small bit of matter suspended in the air. Generally, particles are defined by size. The most common definition that you'll see is PM 2.5, and what that means is particulate matter with a mass median diameter of 2.5 microns or below. And that PM 2.5 particles are the subject of a great deal of research and discussion because those are particles that are small enough to penetrate deeply into the human airway to go down through the trachea, the bronchi, and even into the alveoli. And some of the smaller particles, sometimes referred to as nanoparticles, are small enough to actually cross from the respiratory alveoli, the air sac, into the bloodstream, and then they're transported to organisms throughout the body. Because these particles are so small and can reach every organ in the body, we're now coming to understand that fine airborne particles can produce disease. It was pretty intuitive right from the beginning that airborne particulate matter could cause lung disease, which it does, but we now know that because it can reach other organs throughout the body, that airborne particles can cause disease and dysfunction in organ systems throughout the human body. We read that millions of premature births occur in response to these types of particle exposures, and though it can certainly address multiple medical problems, but apparently it's particularly problematic with cardiopulmonary diseases, those which are life-threatening or just disabling. No, that's that's entirely accurate. There have been a number of large, beautifully well-conducted epidemiologic studies that produce very similar findings, showing that increased exposure to fine particulate matter, PM2.5, is associated with increased lung disease, increased disease and death from heart disease, stroke, also diabetes, probably chronic kidney disease, and as you say, increased risk of premature birth and low birth weight. Where do these particles come from? That seems to be one of the major issues. The main source is combustion of fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas in various locations in stationary sources like electricity generating plants and steel mills and other heavy industry and mobile sources, cars, trucks, buses, trains, ships. There are those of us who are old enough to remember when lead was part of gasoline. That has all been removed. I think that some people have a hard time conceptualizing that a metal, which they envision as a piece of steel, they're not all like that, but it's hard for people to envision that metal can be put into an aerosol. There's a counterintuitive quality to that. Do you find that as a challenge when you try to explain this to people? I think the 
secret to understanding this is to realize that it's all about size. And when metal is heated to a high temperature and vaporizes, the particles that are released to the air are so small as to be invisible. That, that's exactly what happened when lead was added to gasoline at Pete's, which was back in the early 1970s. We were putting 100,000 tons of lead into gasoline each year in this country, and pretty much all of it was coming up the tailpipes of cars and contaminating cities and getting into people, especially children. The same thing is happening today with mercury. Every time that coal is burned in a coal-fired power plant to generate electricity or in a steel mill, all coal contains a little bit of mercury, and when that coal is burned, it vaporizes, it goes up the stack, and unless it's removed by a stack scrubber, that mercury goes up into the atmosphere and eventually comes down in rivers, lakes, and the oceans and builds up in fish, which can be a hazard for human health because, of course, we eat the fish and then the mercury gets into us. Is there much concern? Do we have data about the the polluting products of forest fires that we now see coming out of Brazil? Some of them aren't by accident. Some of them are man-made burnings or what's going on in California. Are those issues similar to burning coal? Yes, absolutely. All combustion produces airborne particulates. In most countries, most of the time, it's fossil fuels, but of course, when you have an unusual event like a forest fire, then the burning forest can be the predominant source of exposure for a period of weeks or months. Two questions come to mind then. One of them you touched on. It's downwind. Those of us who are old enough remember the stories of the nuclear test in Nevada and the people who lived downwind from the bombs, they were called downwinders, suffered from pollution. Do we have much data about that when it turns to downwinders from forest fires or coal plants or even another industrial plant? Do we have any data on that? Yeah, that's that's been tracked. In the eastern United States, for example, particulate emissions from the coal-fired power plants in the Ohio Valley track northeastward on the prevailing winds, and they go up into New Jersey, New York, and New England. In Europe, they still burn some pretty dirty coal in eastern Europe and Poland and surrounding countries, and some of that pollution travels westward into western Europe and has made it difficult for the western European countries to meet their air pollution goals, even though their own factories burn pretty clean. It's been determined that depending on the season of the year, between 10 to 20 percent of the particulate air pollution on the U.S. West Coast comes from Asia. That far away? That far, yeah. You mentioned the term dirty coal. It implies that there is a clean coal. Can you comment on that? That's an interesting differentiation. No coal is clean, but the coal that's burned in some places in Eastern Europe, the, the lignite, the brown coal, is especially dirty. But even the coal that's burned in this country is very dirty. It's the single most important source of airborne particulates and the single most important source of the greenhouse gases that drive climate change. What about smog? Fortunately, we haven't seen too much of it in the last couple of years, but many of us can clearly remember the incredible pictures of Los Angeles that looked like a cloud had just settled down over the city. Is that from the same origins? Smog is basically a, a mix, typically, of particulates, maybe other toxic gases like oxides of nitrogen or sulfur oxide that are released from pollution sources, and in some cases, there's also natural fog involved off the ocean. The good news is that we have reduced air pollution, and therefore smog, we've reduced air pollution in the United States by 70%, 70% since we passed the Clean Air Act in 1970, and it's really a, a remarkable improvement 
England, Western Europe, Japan, Australia have all seen similar reductions in air pollution, which means that we actually have a lot less pollution-related disease and death than we used to. Unfortunately, in the last few years, the current administration has been relaxing air pollution standards, and for the first time in a half century, we're beginning to see increases in levels of air pollution in the U.S., especially in the Midwestern states, and increased numbers of air pollution deaths. This is a very disturbing trend. It reverses a half century of fairly steady progress. By the same token, there has been discussion and attempt to really modify the Environmental Protection Agency's programs to modify mercury and toxic air standards for power plants. This is, this is very bad news. The EPA has had in place for a number of years something called the MATS, the M-A-T-S, which is the Mercury Air Toxic Standard. This is a regulation that limits the amount of mercury and the amount of pollution that coal-fired power plants can emit. And it's been extremely successful. It's reduced particulate levels. It's reduced airborne mercury levels by enormous amounts. And most of the coal industry, most of the ultra-power industry, has found that it wasn't all that difficult nor that expensive to comply with the requirements before the current administration came in three and a half years ago. Most of the coal-fired power plants had actually put in place the controls needed to comply with, with the METs. Despite all that, the current administration is proposing to get rid of these rules or at least substantially weaken them. And if that should happen, then air pollution will get worse, mercury emissions will increase, and the real tragedy of it all is that people will get sick and they'll die, and those diseases and deaths will be entirely unnecessary. One of the diseases that is, of course, interest, well, to everybody, but I'm a psychiatrist and therefore have a little bit of a leaning in that direction, is that these are neurotoxic, and they are neurotoxic to a developing fetus, and they are also neurotoxic to those who are already born. Do we have much evidence to suggest or warn us that there is a psychiatric or at least behavioral sequelae to the toxic materials? Let's start with mercury. Mercury is a well-known neurotoxicant, especially harmful to children in the womb during the fetal period. The way it reaches infants in the womb is through consumption of mercury-contaminated fish. So when mercury comes out of a power plant, travels through the atmosphere, lands in the ocean, and gets picked up in the fish, it can accumulate to very high levels in the fish at the top of the food chain that we humans like to eat, like tuna, like swordfish, like striped bass if you're on the East Coast. If a pregnant woman unknowingly eats one of those mercury-contaminated fish, and, and the mercury, by the way, has no smell, no taste at all, if she eats that contaminated fish, the mercury gets into her bloodstream and immediately goes right over into her baby and causes brain damage to the baby. The brain damage shows up as reductions in IQ, shortening of attention span, behavioral problems that, that persist. At current relatively low levels of exposure, several hundred thousand babies in the U.S. are prenatally exposed to mercury right now. That'll get worse if the administration's proposed rollbacks go into force. So that's the mercury. The other air pollutant that is beginning increasingly to become implicated in neuropsychiatric problems is fine particulate pollution. I mentioned a few minutes ago that when fine particles get into the human body, they get into the bloodstream, they can travel to reach multiple organs, and research is 
focusing over the past five years approximately on the possible neuropsychological, neuropsychiatric complications that might result from pollution. What people have asked, is particular air pollution associated with disorders of the central nervous system? And the evidence is beginning to come in positive. I would not consider it fully confirmed at this point. You have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But there are several good epidemiologic studies now that show that children exposed in the womb before birth to high levels of pollution have increased risks of autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. And there's also emerging evidence that exposure of adults can result in the earlier onset of dementia. Very troubling given the fact that our population is aging and the number of people with dementia is already going up because of the change in the age structure of the population. So if air pollution makes things worse, it'll be a major problem in this country and indeed around the world. Once upon a time, there was lead in paint. Kids used to eat the paint, and that was eventually stopped, thank goodness, because it caused a variety of psychiatric and neurological problems. I wonder if one of the general population's confusions is that we could see the paint, we can see smog, we can smell burning wood, but mercury, we don't know. So it could be a beautiful sunny blue sky day, but there's still pollution in the air. We need to educate that it is not always as safe as it might look. Your thoughts on that? I certainly agree with that. I mean, if there's anything that the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us is that things we cannot see can still hurt us. Absolutely true of mercury in the air. We generally do not get into politics in these interviews. It's not our place. We want to educate. But it does raise the question why so many of the political movements are going away from things that have been proven to be safe as opposed to continuing with that. It, it, again, it brings us straight up against something that's known as the precautionary principle. What are you seeing? What are you hearing about why this movement is occurring? It's dangerous. I think the big issue here, to put it bluntly, is money and politics. The industries that used to be regulated have found that they can evade regulation and thereby reduce their costs, or to use the economic term, they can externalize their costs and put them off on the general public if they engage in a series of actions. So first of all, they call into doubt the studies that have been done, even the very, very good studies that have been done, they call them into doubt. They have learned that they can commission their own studies to come up with findings that typically find that there's no harm or at least very little harm, and then they, they can argue that the studies done by reputable researchers are not really as good as they're thought to be. From time to time, they actually attack the researchers who have done the studies. I had a good friend, the late Herb Needleman, who was a superb child psychiatrist and pediatrician who did superb studies of low-level lead exposure. He was viciously attacked by the lead industry. People have actually studied this phenomenon. A man named David Michaels, who's an epidemiologist at George Washington University, who served as administrator of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, during the Obama administration. David has written a book called Doubt is Their Product. He traces the evolution of the industry's ability to confound the data. It's a series of strategies that began the tobacco industry, picked up by the lead industry and the asbestos industry, and are now widely adopted by a wide range of industries, the chemical industry, the, the vaping industry, and so on, all doing their best to cast a shadow on the data showing that their product causes harm. I think it's, it's all part of the assault on truth that we're seeing at the present time in this country, but not only in this country, also in other countries around the world. I, I consider it very dangerous.
It frightens me enormously. I'm in Florida, and we are one of the centers of the coronavirus outbreaks right now. I'm pleased to see how many physicians are beginning to pick up the the mantle to be more of a political person, explain this to people in greater detail, to patients. The medical community needs to start wearing the public health issue hat as well. The particulate pollution issue, which is very real, is clearly just one of the other problems that are facing this. And thank you for talking about it because we need not to forget it and not to forget that though be it the coronavirus right now is nasty, pray tell, we will have a vaccine, hopefully not not too far in the future. But if we don't deal with the other things, we're still exposing our health. I, I couldn't agree more with you about the importance of health professionals, doctors, nurses, anybody who's involved in health speaking up and being guardians of the truth. It's just so incredibly important. And Even in these troubled times, medical doctors are still among the most highly respected people in their community. And when doctors take the time and have the courage to speak up and say, you know, enough is enough, we have to do the right thing, it makes a big difference. It does indeed. I hope that you can continue with this work for a very long time. It is critically important, and people need to give it some thought, even in the midst of what's going on in the corona world that we're in right now. But I think what you said just a few minutes ago is very, very instructive, that we are now truly facing the reality that things that we cannot see we cannot smell, we cannot taste. It's not good for us. It's dangerous. Absolutely correct. Absolutely. Dr. Philip Landegren is a physician and he's the director of the Global Observatory on Pollution and Health at Boston College in Massachusetts. And again, he's done a lot of work on this. And sir, thank you so much. And I'll say it a hundred times, don't stop this work. It is so important. It's important work. It gets me up in the morning. Just yesterday, on the occasion of the death of great John Lewis, there was a quote, and this is what he said. He said, you must be able and prepared to give until you cannot give anymore. We must use our time and our space on this little planet that we call Earth to make a lasting contribution, to leave it a little better than we found it, and now that need is greater than ever before. I I think great words by a great American. Thank you, sir, for bringing that quote. That's a a fine way to end it. And I wish you well. Keep healthy. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the same to you. All right. Take care. Have a great Sunday.